Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, a rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Matt Smith and my co-host is Rhiannon Evans, a classicist from La Trobe University. In this episode, we will look at Season 1, Episode 2, How Titus Pullo Brought Down the Republic. Broadcast September 4th, 2005. Hello, Rhiannon. How are you going today? I'm fine, Matt. How are you doing? Good. Welcome to the second episode of Raising Standards, a podcast for which Matt Smith still hasn't come up with a better name for. <laughs> you can't change it now. There's an episode out. <laughs> and it's branded and everything. Yeah, yeah. Committed now. I now have to explain what that podcast means each time because it now just sounds like we're being picky. Oh, really? Well, Maybe. I, I think that suits my personality. What, you mean people don't know what standards are in the Roman yeah. context? I bet you the people who listen to the podcast will know what standards are in the Roman context. Um, other people will just think that we're being overly picky about HBO's Rome, which I guess considering you're coming at it from a classical point of view, you are being picky. I actually feel like I'm being less picky than I thought I would be, which does that make sense? I, I think there's less to pick at than I remembered. That's really good. Yeah. That's good. That's a good good thing to be able to say. Yeah. I'm, I'm really enjoying <laughs> it so far. That's good. All right. So let's start with um, episode two, which was called Rhiannon. How Titus Pullo Brought Down the Republic. Ooh, it's all, all right. his fault, apparently. Let's find yeah, out. I, I think that that's not fair to Titus Pullo. Anyway, we'll get into that. <laughs> So, in the opening of the episode, we've got Caesar and his men, the 13th Legion, I believe it identified, sitting in Gaul near the Italian border. It says Italian. I kind of bristled at that right away, but let it go. Um, what, why did you bristle? To, I don't know. It's, it's weird using Italian in that context. Well, Italia existed in antiquity. I mean, if you want to be picky, if we want to be raising standards, we could say that Caesar was sort of partly responsible for the border being shifted. So mm. it gets moved north. In the Gallic War, he keeps saying that he's going back to Italy, but he's actually going back to Cisalpine Gaul, you know, northern Italy now, but it wasn't really then. Should we say italic border? Or should I be leaning further this way if I'm saying that? <laughs> I That's think... a, a visual joke that does not apply and is really quite bad and we should leave where it is. <laughs> um yeah, I guess I guess so, but it's fine. I'm not bothered by that little geographical issue. <laughs> all right, all right, okay. Standard lowered. Uh, so Posca, his slave, is saying that the men are getting restless. Some are fighting, some are deserting this close to the Rome territory. I don't really blame them. They've been away for quite a long time at this point. Some of them for the entire length of the Gallic War, I take it. In hey, the case of Varinus, definitely. It's what they signed up for. Come on. Get some yeah, discipline sure. in there, soldiers. They're impatient. Yeah. I think that this is meant to build the tension for us a little bit, that uh, we we know the war is ended and this is what we imagine soldiers might have been feeling at that point, dying to get back, dying to mm. spend some of the spoils that they've accumulated, have a rest, basically. Yeah. Caesar is getting all of this exposition from his slave, Posca, who is quite mouthy for a slave, I found. I, I didn't feel like a slave should be that forthcoming with Caesar and that comfortable. But I, I think this what's is, your take on that? I think this is about the military context and also it's so difficult for us to know, isn't it, how much leeway slaves could take 
if they had a long mm. relationship with their master and they kind of knew how far they could go. I mean, we've seen slaves treated very badly in the first episode. We've seen Octavian give one a kind of off the cuff, literally off the cuff flip uh, <laughs> on the head. Um, mm. So I think this is another possible version of what could happen with slaves that they might feel that they were comfortable enough in their master's presence, especially when, you know, there are lives at stake or certainly the success of an army at stake and uh, Caesar's future's at stake. And the slave is kind of trying to protect Caesar here by telling him mm. this truth. So I think it's not impossible that this might have happened. The business of motivating men to fight is a tricky matter, Bosco. I would not expect a slave to understand the subtleties. I trust an education in these subtleties will begin shortly. But you kind of see in this show as well um, a, a real division between class orders approached differently with different people. We'll see later on in the episode Verena's feeling uncomfortable about having dinner with Atia. And we saw in the last episode uh, Octavian being quite dismissive towards slaves and wanting to keep a personal distance between himself and Varinus and Pullo until he got to know them a bit, I guess. But it, this episode kind of approaches Caesar quite differently than what I would expect him to be that familiar and that open with a slave, but still try to keep the distance between himself and his men and keep professional and keep... Does, does that make sense that he shouldn't... It was that kind of class distinction that I didn't think should be coming from Caesar. <laughs> yeah, look, I think there's interesting things going on with Caesar because, of course, he is... I don't know whether we, we've we really taken that on yet. I think we will when Caesar's in Rome, that Caesar is a populist, right? That's how he kind of is styled yeah. politically. <clears throat> and so he plays to the people, which is a very broad term and in a way every politician did off and on, but his enemies would certainly attack him for that within the Senate and say that he just played to the mob and of course he doesn't have to play to the slaves they've got they can't vote they've got no power it's kind of pointless but I wonder if for us we sort of put the slaves in the same territory as the lower classes generally the lower freeborn so this mm. is some kind of extension of seeing him as a man of the people if yeah, it is it's yeah. anachronistic because the slave is not one of the people but uh, that he's sort of got the common touch. You know, we talk about politicians having that. People say Bill Clinton has that um, and other politicians you can probably think of too, that they just can relate mm. to people, whatever station they're at. And I wonder if they're not playing off that with Caesar and this interaction mm. with the slave. Posca says, uh, or Posca discusses at least with Caesar, Mark Antony's position is People's Tribune being bought for 500000 uh, nameless denomination that I can't recall at the moment, but it seems like quite a lot of money oh, and positions were bought. An so. awful lot of money, yeah. And by bought, it probably means that people were bribed to vote for him. So it's taken a lot of money. And Antony was Tribune in 49 BC, so that probably locates us there now. Yeah. Uh, and of course, his, that is going to be really important in this episode, so we need to set that up because Antony has a lot of power as the People's Tribune, Tribune mm, of the Plebs. Um, Yes. Uh, so now we get a scene uh, with Pullo, Varinus and Octavian. Um, they're with a bunch of soldiers on the road, three hours out of Rome, we're told, uh, while Mark Antony takes in the local scenery, I suppose, if you want to put it that way. That's in quotation marks. So that's, yeah. that's what somebody says it. Is it Varinus? 
No, I, I, I don't think anyone says it, but uh, that's how oh, I'm Oh, that's your quote. <laughs> yeah, and this is, um, well, yeah, I mean, Anthony is presumably raping a local woman. It's very kind of offhand. The soldiers don't seem to, I mean, they're just being kept around. Anthony doesn't seem to care that people can look on. I think this is part of building his character as someone mm. with no kind of moral limits, that he just does what he wants. He's... It's setting up, I think, an extension of what his biographies kind of place him at, and his enemies in particular, as very libidinous, not wanting to control his wants, and not just about sex, but also acquiring things. Part of the attraction mm. with Cleopatra eventually will be that she's immensely wealthy, presumably. I think it's buying into that. And we'll see, we've already seen, and we continue to see that Antony is often flippant, not very not very serious, kind of quite a surprising friend for Caesar, the way they've drawn Caesar here. Yeah, I guess he's a means to an end, though, in some ways as well. Uh, And I know that last episode, episode one of Raising Standards, I was complaining about the lack of the showing of travel time. So I guess I can't really complain. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, so you think that... Well, I don't know that... Did it feel like a long travel time here? I mean, I guess it's more than people just turning up all of a sudden, which you were complaining about. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. At least they showed something about the road journey. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, yeah. We've got a triumphant return to Rome then for mostly just for Mark Antony, I guess for a bit of reflected glory on Octavian really at that point, but usually it's generally... Mark Antony, here comes the general. So people are celebrating Caesar by proxy there. Yeah, very much by Um, proxy. He hadn't done much of the work. mm. (laughs) (laughs) Octavian returns to his home uh, and is greeted by his mother, Atia, and he's got Varinus and Pullo with him, uh, assumably to be thanked for successfully rescuing Octavian. Uh, Octavian's good about sharing the glory there and you know attributing the thanks to them which is quite good of him considering where he was in the last episode with this sort of thing yeah Um, it feels like he's sort of learning that you you've got to be grateful to those who have supported you because he he comes over Mm. as very cold and class conscious in our terms doesn't he that sort of socially distant and yeah a a sort of typical standoff aristocrat again quite different from caesar yeah, he's he's got a good long story arc to take care of, which I guess he's made quick progress of. But, you know, getting out and seeing the world and having a bit of perspective and killing a few Gauls can do that to a young man, I guess. I think we should remind people at this point. I can't speak from experience. <laughs> I think we should remind people at this point that it's all entirely fictional, that part of it, yes. Octavian being there at all. And Verena yes. and Pullo, who aren't fictional characters, nevertheless, their part in all of this is a way of drawing them into his story, basically. Yes, and and I don't advocate any kind of violence against the French as a way of personal growth. Just to have that disclaimer there as well. <laughs> no, one day when we can all travel again, going to France might be part of personal growth. <laughs> <laughs> just just visit the Louvre, guys. Yeah. Don't burn it down. Just it's fine. <laughs> um, so Verinus and Pullo are not in uniform. They aren't. They're very uh, much in civvies. Yeah. Which I, I thought was interesting because you're, you're going towards Atia as a soldier. You're presenting yourself. But this would have been how come things would have been in Rome. They've, yeah. they've got that right. 
they're not meant to wear their their soldiers' uniform once they're in the city. I mean, they're not meant to march as an army into Italy at all. So, mm. so they have appropriately changed because the Romans use that terminology about going into civilian life that you're going into the toga. I don't think they're wearing togas, but you know, generally out of the military cloak or sargum and into the toga is the way they think of changing from active military service to being off service. Yes, yes. So we've we've got a few scenes here that are interwoven, so I'll just kind of break them up by, you know, what's happening where and what's taking place. So Verinus and Pullo have dinner with Atia, which is something that Verinus feels very apprehensive about, but Octavian is quite insistent that it goes ahead. Pullo seems very relaxed and flirty with everyone. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Again, this is about the character distinction between them. And I also think it's an interesting reflection on what the show is saying about Roman, what you started talking about, Roman status and class, that Varenus seems to have internalized where he should be in which rank mm. he should be at, and he shouldn't be having any kind of meal with Atia. She's too far up. Varenus is, you know, we're going to see that he's a he believes in the old-fashioned virtues of the Republic, so it makes sense that he would go along with where he should be in this status system. Whereas Pullo, he's a bit more like Mark Antony, isn't he? He's quite mm. happy to throw it all in the air. Too few people can be bothered to do things the proper old Roman way. I commend you, Lucius. Varinus is a strict Catonian. I believe in the divinity of the Republic. If Cato believes the same, then I suppose I am a Catonian. But Cato represents the rights of the nobility. Surely a plebeian like yourself would like to see some changes made. Varinus identifies as a Catonian, which uh, I guess is aligning your ideals or your, at least your outview of the Republic with Cato. Yeah, with Cato the Younger, who we've already mm. seen, who is the, very much the strictest character that we're going to see, and that makes sense. He had that reputation. He will be the one who defends the Republic and the the rights of the senatorial aristocracy to the very end. He's played very well as this sort of strict, straight-edge character. Cato's an interesting character because he he's a Stoic and he kind of does everything according to his belief system. He's very consistent, but it's a really rigid belief system. So was Catonian a thing or is that just a show invention? No, it is it is a show invention, but it's a shorthand. Um, mm. I mean, Cato had it's his so, supporters. So we can quickly identify the characters yeah. as being aligned with yeah. each other. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. All right. Another scene that we have uh, interwoven through the episode, or at, the, at least at this early stage of it, is Mark Antony impatiently sitting through a ritual to become the tribune of the plebs. Uh, this happens in the Temple of Jupiter, yeah. potentially Optimus Maximus, which was in the Capitoline Hill. Um, yeah, what were your thoughts of that? Uh, well, it's possible that this was the kind of ritual you would have had to go through because every political role is also a religious one and... Um, there must have been some kind of inauguration. This kind of ritual is possible. I guess the main point of it, though, is to show Antony's impatience and the fact that, again, he treats what should be something very serious in a in a flippant way. This is how he's being mm. characterised, which I think slots right into the way his enemies characterise him. So they've kind of gone for that representation. It makes him an interesting character and a foil to well, lots of people, but Caesar and... Cicero and Cato, all of those more hardliners as well. 
Um, mm-hmm. Anthony's boredom, I find slightly unlikely if we're going to be um, very, you know, raising standards about this. Um, he was <laughs> he was already head of the College of Augurs, so one would hope that he took religion more seriously because the Augurs are there as those, um, you know, the priests who uh, can tell the future or can say something about the situation by looking at the flights of birds in the sky and the patterns. So he has this very important religious role and he's going into this extremely important political role and he just seems like, I mean, I I guess we do have some politicians like that these days. You think, well, are they really going to take the situation of the nation seriously? Anthony's Mm. kind of in that line, isn't he? He'll just do what he wants. He won't consider others. He's just going along with it because he has to, I guess. It's a box-ticking exercise for him. So, well, he, he wants the power, which yeah, which is kind yeah. of what was happening with the tribune of the plebs at this point. It's a very powerful position because you have the veto. Um, it's meant to protect the ordinary people, but it's being abused by politicians right, left and centre. So we soon get a scene where uh, Varinus goes home finally to his family and mm-hmm. finds that he, his daughters are all grown up while he's away. Yeah, so he's this, been gone for eight years. This was not the scene um, I was expecting, I have to say, because I think they were building it up for us to have this this wonderful homecoming that we sort of hear mm. via his conversations with Pullo that he's missed his wife, he hasn't been unfaithful to her, you know, not what you'd expect of a Roman soldier maybe. So I, I think maybe we're expecting that uh, very fulsome welcome and him being glad to be back and we get exactly the opposite. <laughs> yeah, but I kind of I kind of bought it as well, you know, being oh, yeah. gone for eight years in the military. You, much you're more a stranger realistic. coming back. Yeah, much yeah. more realistic, I think. So he's got two girls. His eldest, Verena the Elder, is 13. Uh, and the other one, Verena the Younger, is, well, I assume that she was a baby when he left, so mm. she'd be about eight or nine years old mm. there. And she doesn't know her dad at all. I liked that their names were Verena the Elder and Verena the Younger, so named after their dads. That's exactly what would happen. Yeah, the feminine version of that father's mm. name. And if there was a third daughter, that'd be another Verena. Yeah, and they'd have to give her another nickname. They <laughs> put Illa at the end of her name, like Julilla, no, Verilla. What's, what's the, the the Black Adder one? It'd be the Verena, the even younger. <laughs> yeah, they didn't do that. Not not literally, anyway. <laughs> and you know, his wife is a bit apprehensive about having him around. And there's a new baby there, mm. originally attributed to be. Verena, the elder's baby, but mm. by the end of the episode is revealed to be his wife's baby by a mystery man. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's just adding drama to all of it. But what did you think about that kind of family dynamic that he came home to? Uh, well, or- I, like you, I thought it was very much playing on, I think, the experiences of what we know of the military now, that they they come home and find life difficult in normal domestic circumstances and their family have been carrying on without them. And in this case, his wife thought he was dead. So it probably would be psychologically difficult for everybody. And they have added mm. that soap opera extra element of the baby there and whose baby is it. And But I think that the initial attribution of the child to the daughter is to point out to us that Roman women did get married. She's not, she's not yet married, but she's potentially engaged as long as her father says it's okay. Um, mm. that they got married around that age and that would not be abnormal. So, I, I mean, for us watching it, it seems kind of shocking, but it's, yes, it's to yeah. show us something about the age at which uh, girls were supposed to come of age 
Uh, and it wouldn't be that unnatural. But of course, it's weird for Varanus because he probably still thinks of her as this, what, five-year-old that he left. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about uh, Varenus's attempting to slide back into the role of the paterfamilias and what he expects out of being the man of the house? I kind of like the way that was done because they haven't just sort of made him the father in a nuclear family as we think of it, which often mm. happens, I think, that we just that dramas will just take our version of a family or whatever it is and plant it onto an ancient version. So he is trying to be this strict paterfamilias, um, and he kind of fails because his family has been, they have been living without that, and he hasn't got that role of authority in quite the same way. I like the fact mm. that Nyabi fights back. I mean, she doesn't have the power to do it, but nevertheless, she doesn't just roll over and do exactly what he wants. So she's always shown kind of serving up food for him and kind of doing, technically doing his bidding. But at the same time, she looks quite irritated by him. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, the fact that he cares about that. So I thought they played that quite interestingly, that that role of paterfamilias is sitting on top of it. This, mm. you know, we can see it's there as a structural uh, role in this society, but they haven't just made him this tyrannical character who everyone obeys. They've made it, tried to make it more interesting than that. And we don't know exactly the psychology of what have, would have gone in in a Roman family, but they have, they've had a go at playing that out. So now we get a scene of a secret meeting at Attia's house. And I don't know why this meeting was at Attia's house. This really bothers you, doesn't it, that it was at it Attia's really house? It really does. I mean, okay, you you need a secret meeting between Mark Antony and the various senators of Rome so that Mark Antony can present Caesar's wishes, terms. Yeah, so he's, he's there talking to the important figures, Cato, Pompey, Scipio, Cicero. You're quite right, telling them this is what Caesar wants. And, of course, they're But at Attia's house. It. But at Attia's house... Which I guess Atia, of course, is the niece of Caesar, so she has a stake in it. I know you think that it's just a plot development so Octavian can overhear. Because Octavian, Octavian is building this political experience, isn't he? He's already got mm. insights. We've seen in episode one, he's quite instinctive about this. I mean, you know, Republican women did have some, especially aristocratic Republican women, did have some stake in politics. They were technically yeah. excluded from it completely. But they would they would be involved at some level, especially if they were married to or the daughter of somebody important. They would often be involved in the manipulation. So I think it's part of, it's part of that showing us that women weren't entirely excluded, even though they formerly were. It's made a point to us, and this comes back to what we said earlier about Varinus and Pullo not wearing their uniforms in the city. Mark Antony comes in in, in a military cloak. <laughs> Uh, he yes. really pays no attention to custom and tradition, which were kind of the mm. you know the bywords of being a Roman that you you did abide by precedent. And Antony just doesn't care in this series. <laughs> the terms Mark Antony presents are not acceptable to these Republicans. But that's the whole point, I kind of think. So mm. presenting this is what Caesar would be happy with. So he would like command of a province. He prefers Illyria. And that will bring legal immunity. Now, Mark Antony spells all of that out, but that's for the audience's benefit. Pompey probably 
fully comprehends what giving Caesar a province would mean that they can't take action against him. Exactly. But so I think I think that it's trying to be that outrageous so that it pushes Pompey to refuse. Yeah, I you know, there's all kinds of uh, power play going on here. People saying things that they don't really mean to get the outcome that they want and this is probably part of that. And and you're quite right that the Republicans knew that Caesar was aiming to extend his magistracy in some way because mm. Caesar knew that as soon as he came back, he would be put on trial. Cato in particular was just dying to get his teeth into him, to try him for, for almost anything. But one of the main ones was that he had taken action against a friend of the Roman people, Ariovistus, the German king, back in 58. Um, so, mm. you know, he, he's had... He's had this this kind of simmering resentment against Caesar all the way along. And they know that any extension means that he gets immunity from that. But we don't know that as an audience. So we need that spelled out to us. You're quite right. Um, mm. And of course, this goes against everything the Republicans want, because if they just keep letting Caesar, as they see it, get away with this, then what's the point of, of the rules of the Republic? Right, yeah, and he—he's yeah. you meant you meant to go to these provinces for a year. He's he's been in Gaul for eight years, so he's already had that. He already got a very long magistracy proconsulship, and then he got it extended. So there's just no limits to his power as far as they're concerned, and that's only going to get more and more as the series goes on. More and more resentment yes. about the amount of power he has. And they're threatening each other, aren't they, in this scene? They're sort of sizing each other up and seeing which one will blink. The man's term of office ends in two weeks. We say six months. Two weeks! He sits alone in the venner with one mutinous skeleton of a legion and he dares to dictate terms to me. Caesar has many more legions than the 13th. On the far side of the Alps. Winter does not last forever. Spring comes... Snows melt. That's a threat. I assure you it is no threat. Snows always melt. So I guess uh, spring is coming is the <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. the original winter is coming. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the point is that at the moment Caesar only has the 13th legion with him, but there are mm, other legions yes. in Gaul and they can come as soon as the snow melts. Almost unlimited resources if Caesar wants to bring them in when the time is yes. right. The threat is made without it being a threat. It's very good. Now uh, we get, well, probably not now, but also in this episode, we get a few scenes of uh, Pullo spending his money on whores and gambling. Rhiannon, did you enjoy these scenes? <laughs> you know that. You know I find all the sex scenes just a bit too much. Um, we, we know that um, prostitution was legal in Rome mm. and it was common. Uh, we know gambling was very, very popular. It's not surprising that Polo, with all the money he's come back with, which he seems to get rid of very quickly, <laughs> would indulge in both of these. Uh, but as usual, it's got that whole uh, we have to HBO be overly explicit thing. thing. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I think in this period, it was kind of um, a novelty. You know, the French have been showing it for years, but all of a sudden we could do that <laughs> in the English speaking world too. <sighs> Anyway, so he runs into some of Pompey's soldiers, and it's uh, very pointed. These men have issue with the fact that he's one of Caesar's soldiers. Mm. Uh, Pullo doesn't seem to have any issue with this at all. Their money is as good as anyone else's, so he sits down and plays dice with them. Finds out that they're cheating. Uh, a fight ensues, and Pullo's smacked in the back of the head with an amphora of some sort. I take it. 
bit yeah. of Roman pot. Yeah, bit of Roman <laughs> pot to the back of the head. It's good kind of ad hoc use of uh, what you've got around as a weapon, clearly. So this is beginning to set the seeds for what the title is referring to of how Titus Pullo brought an end to the Republic. Mm. He's got this feud going on with some Pompeians just over a gambling issue. It's not ideological for him, although it will end up looking ideological. He just picked mm. a fight. He ends up picking a fight with someone who's done him wrong, but they're on the other side of the ideological divide. I, Any- I also like how um, how on one level you've got Pompey and Caesar showing that ideological divide and being kind of very pure, bureaucratic and gentlemanly about trying to sort it out and outmaneuver each other, whereas oh, these I don't guys think that- at the soldier level, <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. an amphora to the back of the head. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I don't think that it's portrayed as Pompey really trying to sort it out. He's trying to sneakily get the upper hand. Pompey comes over as a lot more sneaky than I've ever thought of him here, actually, as we'll see. Yeah, but he's not going to M4 a Caesar to the back of the head, is he? No, that would probably be a bit brutal. He'll just paint a few Gauls blue and – no, Spaniards blue, sorry, and uh, and get them to sneak in and steal a standard. So Pullo is going to require brain surgery, which we'll get to shortly. But I just wanted to stop briefly on a, a bit of scenery that we're given, which is an old lady climbing up to put a block in a wall, which is to show the change of days, I guess, to show you that time is passing. Yeah. Uh, a bit of flavor text, so to speak. This huge – calendar or the which the romans called the fasti we, we know mm. these existed and we still have them you can go see them in museums when they open up again uh in rome and the fasti are kind of vast and they're carved into these huge huge stone structures and put on public display so it's this kind of public display of time which shows which days you can do things on which days are acceptable and unacceptable fas and nefas in latin uh, and, and I love that detail in the show that you get to see these on public display. Yeah, yeah, it's done very well. So was it really putting a block in a little notch in the wall and accurate way of denoting the passage of time? Well, the ones we have and the reconstructions of them don't seem to have that. There must be a way of marking when the day is, but that seems to be a Hollywood version of what was going on with them. Mm. So they've taken a certain amount of liberty with uh, the evidence we have. But nevertheless, they obviously don't have personal calendars and there's nothing digital to tell you what day it is. So you go and look at this if you don't know. <laughs> yes. How did we get by without phones? I don't know. Um, Pullo staggers to Varinus's house, which he remembers where it is because Varinus conveniently told him earlier that he, I think, lived behind the the dying... Dying D-Y-E, not D-I-E. <laughs> Yes. Is that, is that how he put it? The dying? Uh, the wall uh, dyers, something like that, yeah. Which I imagine would have been quite a whiffy place to live. <laughs> yeah. Well, they use urine to clean the wall, so quite possibly. Long standing, I just think Rome would have been smelly. The Roman world would have been extremely smelly. So probably one sure. bit as bad as another. And uh, if you've got a bit of a brain injury, it would be rather difficult to follow your nose. But still, he remembers where Varinus lived. So he manages to stagger there. And uh, Varinus gets a surgeon to come and have a look at him who does. Well, look, it's it's probably very modern for the times what he does to Pullo. But I was about to call it archaic and brutal. But it was actually probably the cutting edge of surgery. Mm, Literally. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he gets a kind of. Well, at least skull, maybe even brain surgery, trepanning. 
I like the mix of they cut open his wound and put they put some kind of metal plate in it of this sort of very what we would think of as primitive surgery, and then yeah. at the end the surgeon says, "Oh, you could, you know." I think Verena says to him, "Is there anything else I can do?" He says, "Well, you could pray to space, who's the which means hope, the god of hope." So you know you're gonna you're gonna need a bit of luck to get through, <laughs> for him to get through this. That it would have been quite natural, I think, for a doctor to have said that you combine the kind of practical what you do mm. to the body with uh, giving an offering or going and praying to a particular god. Those two things aren't in conflict. To give us a bit of insight to this scene, I'm just going to cut to a, a brief interview that I did with our uh, Roman medical correspondent, Leanne McNamara. <laughs> it's a good thing to be able to say that we've got a, a Roman medicine correspondent. So it's so great to have her on hand, <laughs> yes. All right, so we'll cut to her now. Leanne, I, I wanted to get you into the podcast briefly just to ask you what the hell was the deal with that medical procedure that Pullo underwent. Is that kind of realistic? Actually, it is. It was um, very well done, I think. That's called a trepanation. Yeah. And uh, it's been practised since Neolithic times in all sorts of cultures, but uh, it certainly was practised in the ancient Roman world as well. Uh, And I think that the creators of the show have actually uh, done a good job. It's not perfect by any means, but they've done a good job at trying to recreate the ancient medical tools from mm. our descriptions and um, what the procedure might have looked like. There's a few anachronisms, but I think they've done a good job. So w- what do we know then about the, the historical accounts or just even descriptions of, of this sort of medical procedure? So the earliest Greco-Roman descriptions we have are from the Hippocratic texts, the ancient Greek texts, but the Romans very much adopted their procedures from the Greeks. Mm. Uh, So I think that we can take some of those descriptions in the Hippocratic texts as um, relevant for the Roman context as well. We've also got two Roman doctors who describe the procedure for us, so that's even uh, better for uh, the producers of Rome or the creators of the television show. Mm. So we've got Celsus, who was a um, first century CE encyclopedist, wrote a whole encyclopedia, but it's the medical sections which survive for us. So he describes this process of drilling bone in general and trepanation of the skull in particular in quite some detail and that weird medical tool that they use uh, the modialis is described in Celsus so um, indeed they use those weird circular type or cylindrical saws to drill the, the skull Galen also describes the procedure. He's writing about a century after Celsus and long after the the events in the TV show, but he rubbishes the use of this uh, modialis piece of equipment. He thinks that the bone should be chiselled, not uh, drilled at all, Uh, but Mm. he still is advocating trepanation in extreme cases. Yeah, yeah. It it must have been an extreme procedure. So... Whether it worked or not, it seemed like it, well, it worked in Pullo's case, but did the Romans have an accurate perception of what they were doing? So it seemed to be something to do with alleviating pressure, but would that have been intentional on their part? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. the, the whole point of this is to relieve pressure on what they call the membranes. So we'd call them the meninges, the, the coverings on the brain and the mm. brain itself. That's the whole point of the procedure. So, in fact, the most anachronistic or inaccurate part of the procedure that's in the television show is, well, what we now call cranioplasty, that metal disc that's put on the top of the brain. Mm. That would uh, defeat the whole purpose of relieving the pressure on the brain and wasn't done in Roman times. Oh, okay. So, so it was literally just drilling a hole. Drill the hole, remove yeah. the fragments of the bone with the tweezers, which you, you see in the, um, in the television show, mm. and then very lightly bandage the wound uh, and, and keep Whoa. removing those dressing every day. Yeah. Uh, there's quite a bit of a description about what uh, the, the recovering patient has to avoid until the bone uh, regrows. It's very clear they're not uh, patching the bone at all. Yeah, yeah. And Romans weren't big on whole burial they were more of a cremation kind of culture so have any skulls surfaced that have had this procedure done to them from roman times yes absolutely there have been but you've hit the nail on the head that cremation that's um, a bad way to put it but... <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, a, that's a good way to put it the pun was absolutely intended um it, it's um a problem to find lots of skulls with evidence of the procedure because yeah. of the Roman preference for cremation. But there have been a number of skulls and some of them do show uh, healing on, of the bone. So it would suggest that at least some people survived weeks, if not any longer, from the procedure. Wow, that's intense. Every now and then, the, a Roman medicine surprises me even more about what they were able to achieve and also just how scary it would have been to to go through that sort of procedure without any painkillers or anything. <laughs> it really would have been. And yeah. another very inaccurate thing I have to say um, it, with the show is the amount of blood loss would have been extreme. Scalp wounds bleed like stink. The, the scalp's really vascular. Mm. Um, and so the idea that you could do that procedure with a patient lying down, he, he's on a slight incline if you look carefully, but he really really needed to be sitting up because there's no suction or lighting in antiquity for doing this kind of procedure. Um, so it, it, the amount of blood was, um, I'm sure, much more impressive than the producers uh, showed. They missed out on the opportunity for some gore there. <laughs> I think there was more than enough in that scene. <laughs> I, I didn't watch it in front of the kids, I have to say. <laughs> they would have fainted. <laughs> Now we get some behind-the-scenes manoeuvring uh, with Pompey conspiring with Cicero to get his vote against Caesar while they watch a... Uh, is it a gladiatorial bout? Is that just, yeah. you know, on a very simple term, a, a temporary theatre? Yeah, which... I, I wonder if it's a practice session even. It looks very ad hoc, doesn't it? It must mm, have happened mm. around Rome. It's just a place... You know when people have corporate boxes at the footy or something? <laughs> it's yeah. a bit like that. I did wonder where, whether it wasn't inspired by the film Spartacus as well, where those who've seen Spartacus will know the scene I mean. They're watching this bout and it's just kind of, they, they really care about what's happening. It's just somewhere to talk. Yeah. I do like, though, that they resisted the urge of just going, ah, people identify the Colosseum with Rome, let's plonk that in here. Oh, God, no, yeah. that would have been a terrible travesty, wouldn't it? It would have been completely inappropriate because it's going to be well over 100 years before the Colosseum is built and opened. I think they would have got complaints. 
the conversation between Pompey and Cicero really lays out how the rest of the episode is is going to try and play out. So you get the whole plot explained to you before you see it, essentially. So Caesar is going to be declared an enemy of Rome. He will be ordered to disband the army and return for trial. But at this point, Antony will use his veto power yeah, as his, tribune. His tribunition veto. Yeah, All right, and so Pompey it's, and Cicero are counting on that happening. Yeah, they it's a weird plot, isn't it? Because making Caesar a, an enemy, a hostess of Rome, is a big deal. That means that they can declare that basically they're declaring war on him. Anyone can get rid of him. But they don't actually want that because Cicero in particular, as I've said, is portrayed as wanting to stick everything back together and get back to the old republic. So Mm. they want to just kind of bring Caesar down to the level he should be at. So the idea is that he doesn't actually get made an enemy of Rome because Antony vetoes it, but Caesar will realize that he doesn't have power in the Senate. He's alone in the Senate. So Mm. he will presumably backtrack a bit and just agree to what they want. So it's it's like being impeached in Congress without the Senate actually firing you. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even sure. It, I think it, it is portrayed here as having more power than that. I mean, it falls apart. It doesn't work, as we'll see, this plot, um, yeah. for which we have no evidence. They've, they've made it up to have some intrigue in the background. I think it's quite nicely done. But if the plot had gone ahead and worked, then would it actually have made Caesar change his mind? Actually... I think it would have had the same effect. I think Caesar would have just marched his army in anyway. So, so maybe, maybe mm. that is a good analogy. It had, it would have had no effect even if it had worked, in my view. So Pompey threatens to Cicero, you know, if you don't come along with my plan, I'm just going to take all my troops to Spain, which just would make the situation even worse, I think. So, <laughs> yeah, and look, I quite like the way that these politicians, like Pompey and Caesar, if they don't get their way, they pretty much have an army at their behest, even if it's been laid off. There are troops, as we've seen in Rome, Pompeians, who will come back and fight for Pompey. They've got that threat. They claim they want to do things by political means, but if they can't get their way, look, they can just raise an army, or they've already got Mm. an army in Caesar's case. I propose a formal motion. Unless Gaius Julius Caesar immediately lays down his command, disbands his legions, and returns to Rome for trial, this sacred assembly will declare him a public enemy of the Senate and people of Rome. So Cicero, uh, now on the Senate floor, eventually dithers a bit. I don't like how Cicero is being portrayed. I want him to have his big moment. I'm still waiting on that. Come on, David Bamber, pull it out. Where is it coming from? (laughs) So he sides with Cato and Pompey. Yeah, and um, you're, you're right, he does do that. But I think that, that is, that's very much how people tend to see Cicero in this period from his letters. You know, he, he's trying to be on one side and the other side and bring, he's trying desperately to bring them together and he doesn't see that it's too late and it's all fallen apart. And I'm sorry, mm. if you want to see Cicero being decisive, we're at least 10 years too late. He was consul back in 63 and I think we've missed his big moment. We need a prequel yeah. with Cicero. How about we need that? a prequel with Pompey as well. All right. Yeah. I want to. I, I want to see Pompey's, you know, golden time because well, we're then seeing. You need the sixties. Yeah. You need the sixties in there. <laughs> That's when they were both in their element. 
the vote goes ahead. Uh, Cicero calls for Mark Antony to use his veto. Mark Antony is sitting back, enjoying all the proceedings and enjoying the fight that's breaking out. And doesn't seem to realize that he's got his veto. Plus, also, before you comment on that, where's all the other tribunes of the plebs who can also veto? Uh, I think to simplify things, this production has sort of um, presented it as there is a tribune of the plebs. There were 10. Mm. But it doesn't really matter because Mark Antony is the one who has Caesar's interests at heart. Okay. So he's the one yeah. who should do it. So if this mm. were to have happened, it wouldn't be surprising that they'd think Mark Antony would be the one to say no. However, he's barely taking any notice, is he? That's why we had him presented as as really being bored at his inauguration. He doesn't seem to really care. And then, in which case, why does he want to be tribune? This is the whole point. This is the power. This is the point at which you get to, you know, say no. This will not mm. happen. This is the main power of the tribune. Uh, so he's just a bit useless in, <laughs> in this production. <laughs> he, he's useless in in that role, but maybe you know it's it's a role on the way to the next role, and also Caesar needs him to be tribune of the plebs. Well, he does, but he needs purposes. him to do his job as tribune of the plebs. <laughs> However, there's there's bigger wheels at play. I suppose if he had vetoed, he's playing into Pompey's hands. So maybe it's just as well. But he doesn't realize any of that. So the veto isn't heard because of the fight that breaks out. Um, but because this is a religious matter, uh, which is a, a bit of a plot point that we're told by an old senator who doesn't get a name. I was looking furiously for who that <laughs> senator was meant to be, but he's never given a name. Um, so the motion stands until the next morning when everything can be reconvened mm. conveniently. And therefore, Mark Antony has to get back to the Senate mm. through a very antagonistic mob. Oh, yeah. Hostile crowd or what? This explains the title, how Titus Pullo brought down the Republic. When he's marching along with Mark Antony kind of as his uh, his personal protection, I guess, to get him to the Senate, he's seen by one of the men that he was in a brawl with who lunges at him and the whole brawl starts up again. Remember, the original Mm. argument was over gambling. This now becomes Caesar's men, Mark Antony's protectors against the Pompeians, having a a huge battle uh, on the way to the Senate which means Mark Antony never gets there. So the motion isn't vetoed. So Caesar is made an enemy of the state and this is going to lead us to civil war. Mm, mm. So it's a very personal problem, like a a background thing, the whole Rosencrantz and Guildenstern element of these two characters, I suppose, that affects the the wider storyline, which I kind of like. But I don't like how the episode puts the blame on Titus Pullo because it should have been, you know, how the Pompeian soldiers who cheated at dice and then tried to attack Pullo brought down the Republic. But they aren't focal <laughs> oh, characters, you really this, don't, I suppose. You really don't like this title. <laughs> yeah, and I guess from the point of view, the big picture is it looks like the Pompeians, and this is how Caesar and the other big names read it, that these people have been told to stop Mark Antony getting there. Right, mm. so it looks like more political machinations. There were lots of these street brawls going on through the 50s, so it's not surprising they read it like that. So one of the tribunes who was at that time voting for for Caesar's interest, Clodius, had been murdered in the 50s, in 52 BCE. All right, so there's precedent for this. It's not surprising they would think that that's what's being done to Mark Antony. And furthermore, as is made clear by Julius Caesar, 
a tribune of the plebs is sacrosanct. Their person is uh, meant to be invulnerable. So doing yes. this is breaking the law. It's a criminal act. Mm. Um, because mm. the whole point of their power, there's no point in their veto if you can just get rid of them. Although if we go back through Roman history, tribunes of the plebs have been murdered. So it's happened before. Um, when they try and bring in something that's unpopular to the Senate, for example. Um, this happened to both of the Gracchi back in the second century. This is playing on, quite rightly, a long-standing uh, kind of turbulent Roman history of the Tribune of the Plebs supposedly being someone who can stand up against the Senate for the people, but this often leads to violence, and that's mm. the way it's read here, whereas, in fact, it was over a gambling debt. Yes, yes. The uh, the veto isn't heard at all now, so the motion is carried and Caesar's declared an enemy, which is essentially giving him the free reign that he needs to march his army on Rome. Was Caesar justified? You know, this is a in real life kind of question. Was he justified in marching his army on Rome or was it just something that he felt that he needed to do? You could write whole books on this, couldn't you? I mean, Caesar knew that he was breaking the the rules. He was doing what he will do, crossing over that unbreakable bond of crossing over into Italy with an army. You could argue both sides. He felt he'd been pushed to it. Mm. They're going to criminalize him if he comes back. The Senate has become more and more, or a certain block in the Senate has become more and more resistant to um, making a deal with Caesar. Yeah, he, he's absolutely breaking the, the, the rules of the, the Roman Republic, but you could argue that the hardline Republicans like Cato were asking for it because they wouldn't make any of the changes that would have appeased Caesar and his followers. And it goes mm. much deeper than it can be presented here. It, it goes much deeper into arguments about land and who gets the citizenship. And, you know, it's a long standing resentment. It's been coming for a long time. And it's somebody as bold and brutal as Caesar who's prepared to take it on. You have what you wanted, Cato. Caesar has no choice now. Come the spring, he will cross the Alps with his legions and march on Rome. So Mark Antony returns to Caesar, uh, tells him what's happened. Caesar goes out to address the troops, tells Mark Antony not to wash the blood off him because it's a better presentation to the troops. Absolutely. Caesar knows, and this was certainly true, how to do PR. What will look good? <laughs> what, will, what will make their blood boil if they see the tribune of the plebs with blood on him? And he says, you look like Leonidas at Thermopylae, referring to the, this is what happens in the film The 300, uh, or at least loosely where he's going back way into Greek history with the Persian invasion when the 300 Spartans stood up against the Persian army at the, at the pass at Thermopylae and Leonidas, the Spartan king, sacrificed himself and his 300 soldiers in order to, to hold them up. Uh, mm. So this kind of heroic image, I could not think of someone less like Leonidas at Thermopylae and the, the <laughs> reputation he has than the way Mark Antony is being presented here. <laughs> because Leonidas is kind of, you know, it's all about self-sacrifice. Mark Antony is all about feeding his own pleasures. <laughs> so now we get Caesar presenting to the troops. He singles out Titus Pullo for a bit of praise, which is ironic because he then gives him a purse of gold for bringing down the Republic for his role that he played in it. So well, a bit of reward. Presumably yeah. for de trying to defend Mark Antony. But then we yes, all know that definitely. it wasn't really about that, don't we? It was a much more personal vendetta. It's also interesting playing with this idea that Caesar has very loyal troops. No doubt he did have troops who were loyal to him. And 
as we can see, uh, Varanus is very loyal to him, even though Varanus is more of a Catonian. So mm. even somebody who doesn't believe in what Caesar's doing, because he is part of the 13th, he is a member of the 13th Legion, will will go along with Caesar at least to an extent. But this idea that Polo is the one who's most loyal, and Polo is depicted as being a, a good soldier, you know, although a bit of a renegade now and again. But in this particular act, he wasn't acting on behalf of Antony, he was acting on behalf of himself. It's interesting that you say that about Varinus, because Varinus, who in the meantime has been quite badly injured, was taken back to Caesar's camp rather than left in Rome. Where yeah. Better that, to kind that, of tend to his injuries. That feels so. like a, a, a slightly badly plotted point, doesn't it? He, mm. For the sake of the plot, he has to be injured because when Caesar marches his army into Italy, I think Varinus needs to not be quite aware of what's going on and to become aware of it. So being injured is a good way of dealing with that because he's been carried along in a cart. But mm. if, if you think about it, why would they take Varanus? He's already been injured back in Rome. Why would they drag him off to Gaul? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Nevertheless, it's very dramatic that he, it's kind of partly from his point of view that we see this iconic moment of crossing the Rubicon crossing the Rubicon River into Italy. Yeah, it isn't Caesar who says the line. He never says the die is cast or anything like that or makes note of the crossing the Rubicon. We do see the army crossing the river. Uh, we see a young boy kind of taking note of the army going past him. Um, but, you know, nothing of Caesar saying, you know, here we are crossing the Rubicon, something dramatic that Rhiannon's actually going to read out the proper account of uh, Ali Jackday Est. So Which that, is said multiple times in Asterix comics. <laughs> <laughs> so it's often said as the die is cast, you know, that it's been thrown and so I'm committed. Alia yacta est. But Caesar is reported as saying something similar to that in a few sources, biographies, and I'm going to read you the one from Appian. It's not quite the same, mm. but as you'll see, it's very similar. And it does build it up as if Caesar knows this is a dramatic moment. So here's Appian Civil Wars, Book 2, Chapter 35. Coming at a fast pace to the river Rubicon, which is the frontier of Italy, he, that is Caesar, stopped and gazed at the stream, his resolve coming and going as he thought of all the troubles that would ensue if he crossed this river under arms. By way of passing these reflections on to his companions, he said, if I refrain from this crossing, my friends, it will be the beginning of misfortune for me. But if I cross, it will be the beginning for all mankind. And speaking like a man possessed, he crossed quickly, quoting the proverb, let the die be cast. So not the die is cast, let the die be cast. May it happen. All right. Yeah. Let's kind of fling everything in on this. But he knows that it's an important threshold, that it's an important crossing point. He's breaking boundaries. This is the declaration of civil war. So I like that we get it from the point of view of, um, you know, a non-participant being the little boy, who's, I think he's fishing, um, and the two kind of lower class ordinary soldiers. And Varenus making clear to us that he now regards this act as a criminal act. Because remember, he's ideologically on the senatorial side. So mm. he feels implicated by this, that he's made a criminal by it. But he's part of the 13th Legion, so he can't. He can't betray Caesar, at least at that moment. So he's really torn by it. Polo's fine with it, of course. We're moving. Hmm. The whole legion sounds like where to. 
It's a river. What river? This is a Rubicon. Stay calm. This is rebellion and treason, and I am no traitor. It's too late now. We're across. We're in Italy. You're a rebel, whether you like it or not. Rather than end the episode at that point, they've gone for the soap opera ending, which was uh, Varinus's wife, Niobe, breastfeeding the newborn boy mm. to kind of reveal, ooh, it's not his child because it's not her daughter's child. And do, do. They went the complete soap opera ending. Yeah. Does anyone watch EastEnders outside of Britain? I'm amazed you know that tune. I actually didn't know what it was from. Oh, really? No, very much is the EastEnders. And they often end, as you're quite right, soap operas often do, but EastEnders is famous for doing that cliffhanger drop the dramatic incident and then just finish so people come back for the next episode. Yeah, yes. well, we'll see what happens with that. As I say, it's been we know that we have this uh, model of patriarchy that's been set up for that household that works a bit but doesn't work within Varenus's household. So we've got all of these different tensions going on there and we're going to have even more now. Uh, so thus ends the second episode, uh, How Titus Pullo Brought Down the Republic. Shall we have some listener questions now? That would be great. Okay, so the first one that I've got here is from Christopher Smith. Uh, no relation and probably not the former director of the British School at Rome. Yeah, I nearly said not that one, but I didn't know how much of our audience would know that (laughs) Christopher Smith is a a renowned Roman historian. Given the events of the past few decades, how expected or regular would the brawl be in the Senate House or the bloodshed in the street between the gangs headed by the politicians? So we've kind of covered the the bloodshed in the streets. That was, you know... A normal Tuesday. Yeah, certainly. And what I referred to before with Clodius, Milo's gang, who was sort of seen on the Pompeian side, killed Clodius, sort of seen on Caesar's side in 52, is is sort of seen as normal. Remember in 52, Pompey was sole consul because, well, sometimes people flippantly say no one else wanted to do with do it, but it was partly so there would be a firm hand because things were falling apart so badly and part of that included brawls on the streets all the time. I think that involving the politicians directly would have been less likely. They're more likely to have proxies. They will say things that we might find quite offensive in the Senate, all right? So mm. so there's a huge amount of insult. That's part of the cut and thrust of Roman politics and speech making. And Cicero's very good at that. And I know that's what you're waiting for, for him to start, start doing a bit of that. Uh, but it tends to be more words than actual physical brawl within the Senate itself, I would say. Thanks for that question, Christopher. The next question that I've got here comes from Teresa Brunetti Lehac from New York. Uh, what in Rome was the venereal temple? So Varinus refers to this when he recommends a cleaner place for Pullo to visit. He says the clean brothels are over near the venereal temple. Mm. So I presume it just means a temple of Venus. There's no particular, I mean, the word venereal suggests that there's a temple that relates to uh, cleaning yourself up after sex or something, or that they had a clear idea about venereal disease, which existed, Mm -mm. but whether the Romans knew exactly what the course of transmission was or what you might do to to offset it is unlikely. But certainly there's lots of temples of Venus and she's a goddess of fertility and sex. So he might go there, but he doesn't seem to, does he? There's a god that he plays tribute to who um, I can't Uh, identify. 
that's the next part of her question. Uh, who is the god that Pullo pays tribute to after visiting the brothel? So mm. it's a, um, a a large statue of a naked god and uh, lots of candles around it. Pullo puts his hand in the flame a bit and then kind of blows a kiss to the god. The god was naked. I'm assuming that it was meant to be Priapus, possibly. Yeah, I mean, Priapus is regularly um, seen as uh, more semi-naked than other gods. He didn't look very mm. hyperphallic from memory. Uh, which Priapus usually is. He's more a god of um, warding off thieves that is, from gardens, though. That is such an academic word. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Hyperphallic. He doesn't have a massive penis. Uh, <laughs> whereas if you... And, you know, the Romans were not shy about showing that in various, you know, in lamps. Everything's. And lamps and uh, wind chimes and... They're not keeping it away Good from luck small children or something. Street yeah. art and <laughs> yeah, I think they've mixed up some modern concepts in all of that. It's it's kind of a good question, and I think none of it is particularly authentic, unfortunately. So mm. Venus exists as a goddess you worship. You're more likely to worship her, I think, in terms of uh, maybe fertility issues or wanting to uh, implant desire in someone that you're in love with who isn't in love with you. And she's sometimes seen as a mother goddess or, uh, you know, in various ways, she's the kind of mother of Rome. Priapus, I don't think you would pray to really with regard to sex so much as you might think. He is much more a kind of god that wards off thieves from gardens, that kind of thing. It's certainly, there's a suggestion there. It's a very uh, elusive suggestion that um, with the mention of cleaner places to visit, uh, that there's a, a concern about venereal disease but i think a god of health like asclepius is more likely the person you'd go to if that's your worry but i'm not quite clear that that is what's going on either all right uh so if you've got any questions about the third episode of hbo's rome which we'll be recording an episode on at some point then send them through to emperor's podcast at gmail.com just like Teresa, if you want to ask a question about Priapus and his hyperphallic nature. Which oh, is she, where we're going she to did not ask that on. directly. <laughs> that's, that's where we took it. That's the answer that she got. <laughs> that's the answer that she got, and that's where we're leaving this episode. Thank you, Rhiannon. <laughs> uh, thanks, Matt. I do want to say to Teresa, please stay safe. Stay very safe, uh, as uh, we can extend that to everyone as well. See you for episode three. Bye. See you then. Bye. You've been listening to Raising Standards, a rewatch podcast for HBO's Rome with Rhiannon Evans, Matt Smith, and special guest Leanne McNamara. Please subscribe and leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Send questions for episode three to emperorspodcast at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rome Podcast. I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening. <laughs>